Good morning. Yeah, I think uh, Pastor Kok, thank you, Pastor Kok Fai, for praying. And I think you said it rightly when you said it's a difficult topic. And uh, I wasn't sure how, how best to approach it. But using the book of Proverbs as uh, the background, I thought, well, let's see what Proverbs has to say about sex and pleasure. But it doesn't have very much to say about sex and pleasure beyond one or two verses, one of which is, take delight in the wife of your youth. So how do you present, uh, prepare a message on that verse alone? Then I realized that there's a better book to study about, uh, to learn about sex and pleasure from God's point of view, and that is, which one? Song of Solomon, yeah. So the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs is also written by Solomon, right? And it consists of eight chapters in poetry form. And basically, it's a recall of the exchange of love notes between the man and his lover. And we find that the words used are very, very tender, very, very uh, explicit in some ways, and read like a love story, a real love story that you would take from the shelf in, in any bookshop. And so giving the idea that, oh, the Bible has got some, uh, you know, titillating ways of talking about this sex and pleasure. So we are not far from agreeing with what the Bible is going to tell us, that sex is pleasurable, right? Now let me read these verses from the Song of Solomon. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools, pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabin. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like camel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. So how do you feel when you read this from the book of Sol the Song of Solomons? No response. <laughs> now, a familiar quote from this book, some of you may know, is, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. And this is in chapter 7, verse 10. Now, chapter 6, 7, 8 actually culminate in the uh, sharing of, uh, in a description of the sexual union between the man and his wife on the wedding night. Right? Now, it is clear from the contents of this inspired book that God looks with favour on sex in marriage. He designed sex as a wonderful gift to mankind. Now, on the next slide, there are seven positive things that we can learn about, or that the Bible tells us about sex, and that is all from the book of the Song of Solomon. And I want uh, to go them one by one, and I would like to have a response from you as to what you think and whether you agree with the Song of Solomon. You have to agree with the Song of Solomon, actually, right? Because it's the inspired word of God, right? So firstly, I can see KC there getting all ready to answer, right? <laughs> sex is romantic. Put up your hands, those who agree. Oh, okay, only Raj, huh? Oh, Raj and Mr. So the newly married are very spontaneous. <laughs> I'm waiting for the older ones. Sex is tender. 
Anybody? Okay, Paul. <laughs> Sex is passionate. Yes, Casey pronounced very sheepishly. <laughs> Sex is holy. Amen. Good. Hear from the ladies, is it? Right. <laughs> Sex is reciprocal. That means it cannot be just one-sided. There must be a mutual response, mutual excitation. Yeah. You all agree? You can see from your spouse and the nod of your heads. Huh? Sex is fulfilling. Yes, uh, Vincent agrees. His sex is fulfilling. We'll get him to share later what he means by fulfilling. <laughs> and sex is about the gospel. And you find this thought actually very clearly conveyed in one of the chapters of the Song of Solomon. So if this has whetted your appetite to know more about what God says about sex and pleasure, we, I encourage you to go home and read all the eight chapters. Yeah. Now, God instituted marriage as a lifelong relationship between one man and one woman. So in this relationship, the love of the husband for the wife is compared to the love that Christ has for the church. There is a mystery and a sacredness about the marriage relationship we should be held in awe. The next slide, I will read with you from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 33. Can we read together? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So God has designed sex, and it is to be enjoyed within the bounds of marriage, within the bond of marriage. And God is against sexual immorality, which is abuse or misuse of sex. And these two verses, just to read two of the several verses that are in the Bible that talk about this, Hebrews 13, 4, that marriage is honourable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. First Thessalonians 4, verses 3 and verse 7, For this is the will of God and your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. For God has not called us for purity, but in holiness. So when we talk about sexual immorality, what do we have in mind? Or what do we mean? Well, it includes adultery, includes fornication, includes incest, and also homosexuality and lesbianism. Incest, as we understand it, is sex between family members, child with a parent, or between siblings. Right, the next slide tells us about what adultery and the Bible are about, what the Bible says about adultery. Well, we know what adultery is. It is a sexual union or a sexual intercourse between a married person 
and someone who is not his or her mate. What does the Old and the New Testament say about adultery? Exodus 20 verse 14. The Ten Commandments contain the prohibition against adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Leviticus 20 verse 10 states the death penalty for, the, for adultery. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbour, both the adulterer and the adulteresses shall surely be put to death. In Matthew 19.18, when Jesus quoted the Ten Commandments to the rich young man, he, he said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. He quoted word for word the commandment that was given to Moses in Exodus 20 emphasizing that what God had told Moses thousands of years ago remained the same. It is unchanging. And in Romans 13 verse 9, we see this similar pattern in Paul's quotation of the Ten Commandments. He says, you shall not commit adultery. And he, commit, he combines all the commandments of the Ten uh, in Exodus into one commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in so doing, he gives us an insight into what is the root of adultery. Now, then another slide quickly to, talk, to define for us what is fornication. Fornication is sex between two unmarried people and includes casual sex, sex with strangers, that means, premarital sex, and also sex with prostitutes or harlots. Now, the next slide, we ask a question. Why does the Bible view sexual sin so seriously. Now Paul has this to say to the Corinthian church where there was sexual immorality and they will come to grips with this when we study the book of 1 Corinthians later. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 15 to 20 Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. To flee sexual immorality, which is uh, fornication in the King James Version, every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And there Paul is addressing believers. Now, why is sexual sin serious? There are several reasons, there are several things that we can think about what harm sin, uh, sexual sin causes. The first is, it is, as uh, 1 Corinthians 6 clear, states clearly, it is a sin against one's own body. We will look at some of the consequences later. Sexual sin, if we pause to think about it, also shows disrespect for God's creation. Thirdly, sexual sin is a failure to be faithful as a steward of what God has entrusted us to care for. Sexual sin also harms those close to us, namely our loved ones, family members. Last but not least, and there could be others, sexual sin, but most importantly, I believe, excludes unrepentant offenders from heaven. Now, every sin we commit outside is outside our body. For example, stealing, swindling, 
bearing false witness. It is all outside the body. But there is a spiritual dimension to sexual sin. It is a spiritual sin in that it violates our body, which God planned to be a temple of His Holy Spirit. And that is what has been clearly stated in the earlier verses in 1 Corinthians 6. Now, in Psalm 129, describes to us the mystery of the creation of our body. Our physical body is a divine masterpiece. It's conceived ages in advance by God. And God fashioned it with His own hand. And it he wants it to be a temple for himself. To have our bodies joined in illicit union with other bodies outside his prescribed plan in marriage is to show disrespect for the Creator God and his creation. And the act also shows our failure to be faithful as a steward of what God has entrusted us to care for. So let us keep these two consequences in mind when we of Paul into sexual immorality. Now, it also has repercussions on our loved ones, as I as pointed out earlier, but the frightening reality of sexual immorality that is not repented is that it will keep millions of people out of heaven unless they repent. And we see this in Paul's warning also to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous, and here is referring to those who are non-believers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So now brings us to a time where we will turn our thoughts to what the book of Proverbs can teach us with regard to wisdom. And uh, I've chosen a passage from Proverbs chapter 7, which is the story of a young man's fall into sexual temptation. Now, King Solomon, in this proverb, he begins by imploring his son to keep his words, to store up his commands, to guard his teachings as the apple of his eye to bind them on your fingers, to write them on the tab tablet of your heart. You can see the earnestness of this father as he implores his son to take carefully, to take heed to what he was going to teach him in his uh, commandments. And uh, we understand why when he begins to unfold a story that will help to illustrate to the son the dangers of sexual temptation. King Solomon tells the story of a young man who is described as simple, one without judgment or understanding or discernment or as someone would say, one who lacks sense. He's got no sense. Some commentators call him stupid. Others call him foolish. And uh, he describes this man walking down the street towards a, uh, in a vicinity where he knew there was uh, this loose and immoral woman. Apparently, she's well known. All right, it's less like walking into a red light district. And she's described as being dressed like a prostitute, crafty, and with a loud character. And what was her intention? She was out prowling to snare young men with her sexual favors. And so when she saw this simple-looking young man, she approached the young man, and before he could say anything, she embraced him, kissed him, and he just got taken up by her, by her so-called affections. 
She then revealed that her husband has been, is away on business. It's likely to take a while. And then she told him that I prepared a room where we can have a lot of fun. All right. So she enticed him with that. She painted a picture of a room that was expensively decorated and has got spices from rich, uh, and has got aroma or perfume from rich spices. She then enticed him to come to her room for what we would call a one-night stand. Now the next slide tells us that with persuasive words, she led him astray and seduced the young man with a smooth talk. And what we learn is frightening is that all at once, this young man followed. The idea there of all at once means without thinking, completely on the spot, perhaps impulsively, or as if saying, like, well, this is exactly what I came for, so let's do it. So he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, or like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver, or like a bird darting into the snare, little knowing that it will cost him his life. And the ominous line in the last line of this Proverbs, many are the victims she has brought down, her slain are a mighty throng. I wonder what comes to your mind when you read about this story? You ask yourself the question, is this woman a serial murderer or young man? Is she something cranky about her that she just wants to kill young men for whatever reason? In any way, anyway, that's besides the point of the story. There's a basic premise behind the story, and it is this. That sex outside of marriage is a violation of the character of God and of His laws, and it carries deadly consequences. As we, if, and later on when you go back to read about this a bit more and, and discover the details for yourself, you'll find that there are three storylines to the events in this story. First is seduction, second, destruction, and third, thankfully, there's some instruction that we can gather or learn from this story. Now the first storyline is that of seduction. Here we see this simple young man encountering a temptation that is so attractive and so powerful that he was unable to resist it. In other words, he fell for the woman, as the phrase goes, hook, line, and sinker. So there are many things that may make it difficult for a young man to receive and live God's wisdom so that they are vulnerable to sexual temptation. And this is not to say that only the young men face the challenge of purity. Older men, older women, and women of every age too have their own challenges to pure living. Yet, we do not deny that these following factors which I shall show in the next slide, they are often more severely felt in the life of the young men. So the vulnerability of young men to the situations where he can fall into sexual temptation, what are these factors? Firstly, quite obviously, being young, lacks wisdom, and I suppose this is a generalization. There could be exceptions. There are some young people who may be very street smart. They learn about life, the, the, the ins and outs of uh, back lanes of life very early for whatever reason. But generally, young men lack wisdom about life and living. Young men too, right? You, they will have a desire for independence, and they also desire to gain independence, right? Because they have been under the watch and care of their parents for many, many years of their life. And they, when they are in the 
19, 20, or when they go to national service, when they start a new job, or when they go overseas for tertiary studies, they have a sense of freedom and independence that is accelerating. Thirdly, importantly to keep in mind, that physical and sexual immaturity may run ahead of spiritual and moral maturity, which means that a young man in their 20s may be physically mature in that sense, but spiritually immature. And uh, so his understanding of the rights and wrongs of issues in life have not been well developed yet. And then sometimes for those young men who are in the transition phase where they've just entered the work job market, they have money and the freedom that it brings, the freedom to spend as they like. Now young women who may knowingly or unknowingly encourage moral impurity also abound in the workplace, in the schools, tertiary ads, etc. Now, of course, we are aware of the spirit of the age, our age, which promotes moral and cleanness for young men. And last but not least, the desire to be accepted by peers who also go through the same transitions or circumstances in life. They want themselves to show themselves to be a hero. So, knowing these factors, there could be several others, and uh, this might be worth discussing in your own discussion groups, especially the young adults group. This, to me, cry out for the need for mentors for our young people. We know and recognize all the factors that could trip them in their, in their journey on life, in life. And it poses for us, especially the older adults with, with life experience and so-called wisdom, to serve as mentors, to be a guide, to be an encourager, to provide admonition at the right time for the young men and ladies too in our midst. The devil is evil. The devil has many tools for seduction. He's in the business of seducing men and women daily to cause them to fall into immorality and to claim their souls for his kingdom. Those who are not yet in the kingdom of God, there's no way Satan wants them to come into God's kingdom. He will keep them away by enthralling them with issues of sexual temptation. So how does he do it? Well, we're all familiar with the things that we see around us which are not savoury, right? Clustering of the billboards. And of course, in Singapore, it's much less so, but it is certainly glaringly uh, enticing in, in certain countries. And uh, sometimes when we watch the wrong kinds of TV shows, there's intrusion of images and values and conversations and actions that are detrimental. Um, then there are men and women who, around who don't dress modestly. There's availability of magazines and other literature that scream sex at all, to us at all the time, all the time. Of course, we're all familiar with the book Playboy, right? And uh, there could be others in the market. And then by getting us too involved with platonic friendships at our place of work, we cannot underscore the importance to be aware of such things, innocent starting points, which can develop into unhealthy relationships that we lose control over. Fifthly, easy access, we all know, right, that there's easy access to pornography on the internet and also on our smartphones now. And we know the dangers of this to our growing children. Right? It's not uncommon to have children less than 10 years old carrying smartphones. And goodness knows what goes into those smartphones. Not that they look for it or ask for it, but it automatically pops up. 
And uh, so this is a call to our parents, our young children, to be aware of dangers that lurk. Satan is out for the souls of our people, of, of people in general. We have to be aware of these dangers. And then, of course, the ease of availability of contraceptive devices. The condoms are readily available in uh, uh, petrol kiosks. Social media technology advances, advances in this uh, make anonymous meetings with those who are seeking for sex so much easier. All these are the tools, are the strategy that Satan uses to trap the unwary, to trap those who are simple-minded, those who are naive, those who are foolish, those who are stupid. Now, the second storyline in this Proverbs chapter 7 is one of destruction. So what began with pleasure ended horribly, as we read that the young man was led like an ox to the slaughterhouse, with the ominous closing line, many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty strong, a mighty throng. Now, what are the consequences of sexual immorality? Well, from the medical point of view, you have sexually transmitted disease. I mean, you, some of us may be familiar with situation, conditions like gonorrhea, syphilis, and HIV. And the scary thing about gonorrhea, where the person who is infected has a persistent urethral discharge, which usually is foul-smelling, is that it is not to a lot of antibiotics currently available. And so you can imagine having an infection which the doctors scratch their heads how to treat because whatever antibiotics that they use don't work. And to have that thing with you all the time will be socially embarrassing, to say the least. And you, of course, lead to all kinds of other complications. Right? Then there's guilt, the guilt that comes with falling into sin. Notice that the man went when he was sundown. He was hoping that in the dark, nobody will see, nobody will know, except the two of them. And so imagine if he, and the fear of being found out, the burden of guilt will always be there. Fear of discovery, depression can result because of all those, depending on the personality of the person and then finally leading to suicide. All the above four factors can lead to suicide as a consequence of that one-night stand. So what King Solomon was saying to his son is that this young man's immorality took him down a road that led him away from God, <clears throat> away from holiness and away from eternal life. So what does God have to say about this? James, there are two passages that are worth for us to be minded about. Firstly, James 1, 13 to 15, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This describes very well the life of that man in Proverbs chapter 7. Galatians 6, 7 to 8 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. 
So the third storyline is one of instruction. Now, Proverbs 7 is not only a story of seduction and destruction, but gives hope in that it provides instruction about wise living. And the whole pro- pu- purpose of uh, Proverbs 7, actually, is to instruct us through warnings, through teaching, to avoid the tragic mistake that this young man made when he sought the momentary pleasures of a one-night stand. So what instruction can we find from Proverbs 7? Firstly, we notice and we can draw from it two powerful weapons to help us stay moral in an immoral age. The first weapon is something that we all already know and doesn't need to be preached on, and that is the Word of God. Psalm, whenever we think about the Word of God and how it keeps us away from sin and temptation, temptation and sin, the first verse that always comes to my mind is Psalm 119, verse 9, which very aptly answers the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding his way, it there refers to his way, guarding his way according to God's word. And in Psalm 1, the same chapter, Psalm in verse 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. And then in verse 11, it expands on the action about keeping God's word in one's heart, uh, of looking to God's word as the guardian of our life by saying, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word have I hid in my heart. And through there in Psalm 119 is revealed for us the secret to wisdom, the secret to living a life that is able to overcome sexual and other temptations. Now, the, does, the devil doesn't have any tool more powerful than God's word. Now, we, do, we know, of course, many of us are here familiar with the temptation that Jesus faced in Matthew chapter 4, right? He was tempted three times by the evil one. And we know that each time he was tempted, he quoted the word of God. So he, he's a great example for us. And uh, we know also that after the third temptation and after the third quotation from God's word, Satan left him because he had nothing else to fight Jesus with. <clears throat> Solomon too understood the importance of the word of God quite clearly. But you and I, we can't live out what we do not know. That's why we must read and study the Word so that we grow in the discovery and knowledge of the treasures in God's Word. Not in an academic or intellectual way, but with the intent to apply what we learn. The next two slides show you the picture of ducks. The first picture shows you a duck that skims the surface of the water. Of course, it's looking for food. And if you just skim the surface of the water, you just get very ikan bilis, right? Small fish, small feet that may not satisfy your hunger or your nutritional needs. But the next slide shows you a duck that is very determined, that is very energetic, that dives deep down. And uh, I think it catches a big fish, a big fish which has got a lot of nutritional value, more so than the ikan bilis or some other plankton that you get on the surface of the water. And what the lesson, uh, what these two slides are intended to show to us is in regard to the Word of God, we cannot just skim the surface. It is not sufficient to come on a Sunday just to listen to a sermon. It is not sufficient even to read the Word of God just quickly for five or ten minutes 
because you have to rush to work or you have got other things to attend to. We have to dive deep into God's Word. The book of Proverbs and nothing else tells us that wisdom is not given to us on a platter. Wisdom has to be dug out. Wisdom has to be investigated, you know, diligently searched for, reflected upon before it is apparent or applicable or made applicable to our lives. So that implies that we have to spend time. And if we were to take you know, uh, an audit of the amount of time we spend reading, studying God's Word each week, what is it like? If it is low and not acceptable, it, it will be more likely than not we will be sitting ducks for the temptations of Satan, not only in sexual areas but in other areas. So, you know, let us take some warning from this morning. Some, if there are some of us who are, you know, urging or, or fighting about the idea, oh, I don't have time for this, I don't have time for the Word of God, I don't have enough time to study, um, may I encourage you to make it a priority in your life. Next slide. Uh, this is actually okay. I hope I'm not distracting you from what uh, we are doing with regard to the word pillar, but... You know, in the preparation for the sermon today, I went through this book called What Does the Bible Say About Sex? And I think this would be an excellent book, especially for the young per people, young persons who are interested to know what the Bible has to say about sex. There are many, many aspects of sex that are covered in this book. It has cheap six chapters. Now, the beauty about this series, which is called the 40-minute series prepared by Precepts International, is that you don't have to be prepare yourself at all. Prepare for the study, I mean. There will be a facilitator who will go through you the study chapter by chapter. Each chapter has got verses all printed out for you to ref, uh, for you to meditate on on with regard to the particular topic in mind. And so you go for it. You, you, have, you can have your lunch and eat while you do it. And everybody in the group will do the study at the same time. And they will be reflecting on the questions that are posed. And then you know through doing it on a regular basis, perhaps just once a week in your lunchtime period or whatever, you can actually have some idea, a good superficial, a good, I won't say superficial because you would need to spend time to reflect on the questions and answers. The verses are given for you. You don't have to flip, flip, flip. That's where the time-saving aspect is. And it will, if you go through the series, give you the, the a good understanding of certain topics in, in your spiritual life. So you could do it in your CG, in between the study series. You could do it in your office if you learn the tools. Now the next slide tells us weapon number two. Weapon number one is know the word, study the word, assimilate the word, make it part of your life so that you can have wisdom from it. The next weapon is be vigilant to avoid temptation. This means like walking down another street instead of going right smack into the midst of the battle, uh, of the temptation. Now, we need to listen carefully to this. And this is my way of repeating what I have already mentioned, that our enemy, the devil, tempts us to deviate us from God's path for our life. And if we take his path, it will lead to death and destruction. It may not be immediate death, but certainly it will have dire consequences. Isn't it true that if you give your attention to him for five seconds, he will consume your mind for five minutes? And the negative images left over 
from that session might bother you for hours and days. So is it worth it? At the flip and click, you can get images that come to your mind in two, three seconds. And then if you quickly switch it off, those images still remain in your mind. And they can bother you for five minutes, for days, for weeks. And uh, it will affect your spiritual life. It will affect many other aspects of your life. Is it worth doing it? And soon you'll find yourself being addicted to it. Right. So what can we do? We have to guard our gates. We all know what the eye gate is. We know what the ear gate is. But the new gate is the phone gate. We all carry phones with us all the time. And <clears throat> it is true, right, that there are certain times when unsolicited pop-ups appear on our phone for nothing out of the blue, and they could be from questionable sources. So when you have this happening to you, you know, exposed to these things in media, that is TV, smartphones, and computers, what should you do? Do you linger on for a few seconds and you tell yourself, no, it's okay, I can handle it. It's just one, two seconds. I think we need to not fool ourselves. Ephesians 4.27, Paul gives a very strict, a clear injunction. Give no opportunity to the devil. No doubt he was speaking, giving this advice to the church with regard to how they handle anger, relationships between members, not to hold your anger, not to harbor anger. Don't hold it because you will give Satan the, uh, the opportunity to create schism and uh, breakdown in relationships. But certainly the principle about giving no opportunity to the enemy is worth applying to this particular situation or sexual temptation. So give no opportunity, which means you switch it off, throw it away, whatever it is. If we entertain, entertain temptations, and I like this saying, if we entertain temptations, very soon we will find the temptations entertaining us. And so we get deviated from our time. Uh, time is taken from what we should be uh, doing with other things that are more meaningful, more productive. And that's how we waste away our time. Now, uh, let me just go back again to some information, some uh, data that we did. Uh, uh, the, the world, uh, the inventory that was done two years ago in April 2017, focused on the family. You all remember that? There were 249 responders from this uh, survey. And what this survey found was that 69% of the male worshippers, that means those who responded, 69 of them who were male, had viewed porn material. In the last two months, in the last 12 months, sorry, and 12% did so at least one time a month, and 18% was viewing it more than one time a week. However, among the women, 23% of the women worship worshippers, that means of the 249, there were 23% of women who had viewed porn in, uh, the women in the portion, in 20, 249 people, 23% of the women in that responsive group had viewed porn in the last 12 months, with 3% viewing at least one time a month. None reported that they viewed one time a week, so they were less frequent, so it seems. How about our youth? The, view, the youth who viewed porn more than one time per month, 4 in 10 were guys, and 1 in 5 were girls. Were girls. Now, we all know the effects of porn on our minds and our hearts. 
It is just a flick and click away from the path that will lead us into unclean thoughts. And we know what Jesus said, right, about unclean thoughts in Matthew 5, 28. He says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that's what porn, or looking at porn images, can do to the man, right? He can lust in his heart, and that alone has caused him to commit adultery. Now, the second sub-item under this weapon is to memorize the Lord's Prayer. This was, I think, sung for us during our time of worship just now in Matthew 6, verse 9 to 13. The prayer to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. Repeat it constantly, daily. And you know that this is a Methodist tradition, that they do it at every meeting. They do it in their communion time. They do it in their worship time, in, in, in their gatherings, you know. And I think it is a worthwhile prayer to memorize because this was a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, right? When the disciples asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray, what did he tell them? The Lord's Prayer. All right, and I would like for us, because it's flashed on the screen now, to read the Lord's Prayer together, thoughtfully and meaningfully. Let's do it. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So brothers and sisters, there is a tremendous battle going on to control or to corrupt our minds and our lives and our hearts, to entrap us into sexual immorality and impurity or whatever form. Let us seek to be victors, not victims, in this battle for our minds and hearts and souls. You know, in closing, I would like to lead us all in two prayers. And uh, these prayers are based on verses that are flashed on the screen. The first verse is in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Second one, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So let us pray together. Lord, we confess our sexual sins and we seek your forgiveness. We thank you for the cleansing power of the blood of Christ over all manner of our sexual sins. Thank you that we are not condemned because we are in Christ. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's a wonderful assurance. And this is similar to the story of that woman who was caught in adultery that the Pharisees brought to him for stoning, for judgment, expecting Jesus to judge and to stone as required by the law. But what did Jesus tell the woman? I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. And that's the message I think we want to carry home with us today, that no matter what sins we may have committed, and the Lord knows, we put on our Sunday best, the Lord knows, but He says, you are not condemned because you are my child. And we have received the gospel. The gospel is the righteousness of God, 
we have the righteousness of God in us. God has sees us as if we had never sinned. And that's what having the righteousness of God is all about. We all have received the gospel. And, um, you know, that's how God sees us. We are not condemned. Galatians 5.1 tells us, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Right now in Christ, we are completely forgiven. We are free from all accusation. You must believe it. You are not doomed to digital dungeons, as one commentary says. Digital dungeons. You don't, you don't have to spend your time wallowing in digital dungeons if you decide today to come out of it and have nothing to do with it. Don't go online with your palms up and your wrists ready for the chains of sin. Now Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It tells us that we have the Holy Spirit in us, and the Holy Spirit will help us in our struggles, will help us in our battles. So let us pray together. Lord, we commit our battle against sexual temptations into Your hands. We acknowledge that enabling of Your Holy Spirit who indwells us as Your children to overcome all sexual temptation. We claim the victory in Jesus' matchless name. 2 Corinthians 5.9, Paul says, Wherever we, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God. So brothers and sisters, the battle for our minds is a continuing battle. Know that you are not alone. The Lord fights the battle for you. He also has provided you with pastors and elders who are the shepherds of the flock who will come alongside you to counsel you, to pray for you, to pray with you. So do not be afraid to reach out and open up with your struggles. Seek their help and let the, God, let the Lord through the Holy Spirit set you free, stage by stage and perhaps completely for some of you, be free from any hold that Satan may have over you. So I'm not sure how today's sharing has convicted us about the need to walk close to the Lord, to know His Word for ourselves, to know what His Word says with regard to sexual temptation, to know that we have the resources available to fight the battle. You know, the story comes to my mind with regard to how we overcome temptation. The lesson we can apply is from the life of David the shepherd boy, the youth, as he confronted the giant Goliath. It's just like us now facing our giants, the pornographic challenges. The youth David was a shepherd boy, dressed in shepherd clothing. And when he heard the insult that Goliath gave to God's people, uh, God, uh, about God's people, right, and boasting about his strength as a Philistine giant, David could not take it. And he confronted Goliath. And when Goliath saw him, a small size, Goliath was at least 10 feet tall, saw David, a young fella, with no armor, no weapons, just a slingshot. He derided, he made fun of David. And he says, very soon you'll be mincemeat on my plate. But David said, with great confidence, he says that soon I will cut off your head and you will be the one that is the victim of this 
encounter with me. And he said, the battle is the Lord's. Five words. The battle is the Lord's. So when we enter into this fight with Satan and his temptations, let us carry this five-word phrase. The battle is the Lord's. We are not on our own. We are not fighting by, but with our own flesh, with our own determination. But constantly tell the Lord that the battle is His. And if the battle is the Lord's, it's a foregone conclusion what the outcome will be. Is it correct? Unless, of course, our faith in God is not strong enough. Our picture, our image of God is not what He is and He should be as portrayed in the Bible. Right? So let us come with humility, with confidence before the Lord to know that He's fighting the battle for us. The victory is already a foregone <coughs> conclusion. We are no longer condemned in Christ. We don't have to be victims of uh, the digital dungeons. We can get out of them. And with God's power and grace, with the support of the family around us, we can say bye-bye to pornography and not allow it to trip us in our journey to grow, to become like the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us pray together. I'll give, give each one of us quiet moments to determine in our hearts to tell the Lord, yes, we love Him, we thank Him for His love for us, and we hold His hand as He fights the battle for us, with us, for us. Dear God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for this morning where we can rejoice in the fact that, Lord, You have made us with a special purpose. You have made our bodies to be the temple of the living God. And You have given us so much of Your assurance, that, Lord. You will help us in our spiritual journey to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So that indeed, Lord, we can present our bodies to You as a living sacrifice, acceptable to you that you can use for the glorification of your name Lord we thank you that even though we have tripped and fallen we do not have to be condemned because we are already righteous in your sight and as we confess our weaknesses as we confess our failures our sins we know that you hear us you forgive us and you cleanse us from all unrighteousness Lord we want to renew our love for you we want to renew our faith in you. We want to renew our confidence in you. And we want to thank you that you have told us that the battle that we have against pornography and any other influences that Satan brings into our life is yours to fight for us and with us. And because that is true, we thank you that we can claim the victory that we have in that promise. So help us, Lord, as we leave this hall to look to one another, to care for one another, to know that our each person is our brother, that we are the, our brother's keeper and that we will encourage, we will support and we will, by example and admonition and, and uh, prayers, Lord, be the kind of support that we need for each other in this spiritual battle against the enemy. Thank you that we can claim the victory that we have in Christ. Father, us, Lord, we are blessing and help us to be bonded with you and to seek your word diligently, study your word and apply the truths in our lives so that we can live lives of wisdom that reflect your wisdom. Thank you once again, in Jesus' name. Amen.